Now, will you turn with me, please, to the passage of Scripture we read in Mark chapter 10. We're going to look this morning at verses 13 to 16. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Well, you know that something is up when you see Jesus angry. When you find a description as here of Jesus uh, expressing anger or speaking in anger, you know that something has seriously caught his attention, that something is seriously wrong indeed as he expresses these words in his anger. And the word that Mark is using here is a very strong word. It's very rightly translated here in the ESV by the word indignant. Jesus was indignant, which is very strong emotional anger um, in uh, the way that the word indignant expresses. Indeed, you could say that there are times when the lack of this kind of righteous, holy anger on the part of Jesus would be a serious defect if it was missing. You'll find it expressed in various places in the Bible, for example, in John Chapter 11, verses 33 and 38, you find him coming to the sepulchre, to the grave where the body of Lazarus had been buried four days previously. And he's agitated in himself. He groans within himself. Different words used to describe it. And when he comes to the grave, again we read, he groaned within himself before he spoke. Now what was all that about? He was moved inwardly. He was indignant. He was angry. He was angry at death. It would be surprising if Jesus wasn't angry in the face of death. Because death had done this to human beings. This death had come to Lazarus. He was no longer in this world. And his body, separate from his, po- from his soul, was laid into the earth. That is what sin's wages is. And Jesus expressed his Annoyance, his anger, his, his emotional uh, approach to death is significant. Now here he is, what is it here that he is indignant? Because it doesn't seem on the surface as if there's something really worthy of Jesus being indignant about. All they're doing is just uh, preventing those who are bringing children from bringing them to Jesus. These people who had these children, they wanted to bring them to Jesus that uh, he might touch them because they had obviously learned by now that the touch of Jesus was significant, that he could convey blessing through his touch or healing through his touch. So they were bringing these children. They were actually infants, very young children, certainly under four or five years of age, possibly even younger, but they were certainly not older than that so that he could pick them up in his arms. There was that age of child, infants. And he was indignant because he saw that they were preventing something very important. They were misunderstanding the place of children in the kingdom of God. That's exactly how he put it. He rebuked them. And uh, in his indignant rebuke, Um, He said, let the children come to me, 
do not hinder them, for to such belongs the, children, the, the kingdom of God. In other words, he's not just saying these children actually uh, belong to the, to the kingdom of God, therefore they have every right to come to me and be brought to me by their parents, so don't hinder them, don't prevent this happening. But he went further and he said, they are actually an illustration of who belongs to the kingdom of God and even of how one comes to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, God from his throne ruling over uh, the uh, lives of human beings like ourselves, everything in which God's rule is displayed. You could say that is the kingdom of God. And here he is saying, to such belongs the kingdom of God. But then he adds, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, like these infants, shall not enter it. And in other words, he's, he's saying here is a characteristic of how we come to enter the kingdom of God and belong to the, to the kingdom of God. We become like little children in order to enter it and belong to it. What does he mean by that? That's what we're really going to look at in more detail today. But first of all, look at Christ's command. Let the children come, do not hinder them. We need to look at that just briefly because it's important in regard to our own view of children and the congregation and belonging to the kingdom of God and the blessings of God. And then secondly, more fully, we'll look at Jesus' explanation, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, and the way, the way that he adds also, um, whoever does not receive it like a child shall not enter it. Well, his command is uh, that, uh, first of all, let the children come to me. That, of course, uh, addresses what was happening with the disciples rebuking and preventing these uh, parents from bringing their children to him, as verse 13 puts it. In other words, Jesus is actually saying something very positive here. He's not saying to us as children or as parents or as grandchildren or as grandparents, it's just uh, as long as you let them come on their own accord, then that's fine, that's all that's required. What he's really saying to, to them here is a positive action. It's not equivalent to let them find their own way. Don't prevent them finding their own way into the kingdom. It's much, much more than that. It's a very positive instruction. In other words, he's really saying, let the children come to me. And obviously these children at their age are themselves being carried to him. And that's exactly what he is saying. Bring them to me. Don't prevent them coming to me because to such belongs the children, the kingdom of God. In other words, it's a verse that really teaches us very positively the importance of encouraging our children. Encouraging our children to come to Christ, to come to know the kingdom for themselves, the things of the kingdom, the rule of God, the promises of God, the commandments of God, everything in which you find God's rule set forth. He says, let the children come to me. We don't think of the children of this congregation, I hope, as the church of the future. They are perhaps the church of the future in that sense, that hopefully as they are spared by God, they will take the place of us adults, especially as older adults now, as they themselves come to adulthood. But that's not how we should see them, uh, although that's the truth in itself. What it's saying to us is, they belong to the church now. They are actually a meaningful part of the church here and now in their youth, in their infancy. And that's 
the positive point that's made here in the passage. In other words, our view of our children as they belong to the congregation, as it's accompanied by how they belong to the church, how they belong to the kingdom, they are to be regarded as those to encourage, those to teach, those to direct to Christ and to realizing for themselves how valued they are as a part of the church, as belonging to the church already. That's the first point, let them come to me. But he added, and do not hinder them. Now that's adding something significant. He wasn't just content to say, let the children come to me, or bring the children, come, bring, bring the children to me. He's now saying, and do not hinder them. What is that adding? Well, it's adding uh, a significant point. It's saying, don't put anything in the way of them coming. Don't put anything in the way of them actually coming to be properly members of the kingdom of God. That's a great challenge to me and a great challenge to yourselves too as parents or grandparents. Don't put anything in the way to hinder them. Don't put them off. That applies to how we speak, to our conversation, to our way of life, to our relationships, to how we deal with one another, to how we speak about the world around us, to our children. Uh, to the priorities we give to uh, the things in life that we have from day to day. What are our priorities? What are our children seeing in terms of our priority? Do they see that our priority is God and of his, of his kingdom? As uh, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 6, remember Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, addressing those who made a priority of the things of this life, of material possessions, whatever they might be. He's saying, seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's why we have such a regard for our children as belonging to the church because the teaching that we are seeking to give them in their homes, in our Sunday school, in our tweenies, in all of these activities is for them to seek first the kingdom of God. Is that what they're seeing in ourselves though? Are we giving them the impression throughout the days of the week when they're not in church, when they're not at Sunday school, are we giving them the impression that somehow other things are more important than the kingdom of God? Are, are we giving them to believe that things to do with the ordinary course of life are to be set above our relationship with God, our pleasing of God, our fulfilling of our chief end of our creation, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him? All of the things that we do with regard to our children have a bearing on what they understand the kingdom of God to be about and our place in the kingdom of God and how we view the kingdom of God and what it means to us to be under God's rule and to be having the privilege of, of honoring God. In other words, we never say, we never give the impression that they are actually too young to understand, that they're too young to come to church and to be at church services. Don't, don't worry about children actually being children in church service. One of the great things to see in this congregation really and encourages us who preach the word and the elders of the church and the leaders of the congregation is that children actually come and are able to be children. Children will actually make child noises. Children actually will need to go to the toilet, will need to go out, will need to come back in. We don't mind that. Jesus had to deal with that. 
that. We don't imagine that all of these crowds that followed him just sat silently and all of these children just sitting in a pristine kind of obedience, sitting there listening to him. Of course not. They were children and he allowed them to be children. That's what we take delight in, in seeing children coming to church services, to church activities, and being children as they do so. So here he is saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. But secondly, he gave an explanation for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he added, truly I say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And these words, like a child, are important. Whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. To such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, what did Jesus mean? How are we to understand this? It's obvious that he wanted children to be brought to him, that he saw that children had a meaningful place in church or in the kingdom of God, and that nothing was to hinder them coming to him. But what does he mean for uh, to such belongs and like a child? I think it means that children of that age, infants, have characteristics that Jesus saw as an illustration of what we must be in order to enter and belong to the kingdom of God, in order, in order to be Christians, in other words, in the full sense of the word. To actually have that, there are some characteristics that you see in infants and young children that help us to ex- help to explain what Jesus meant. And there are three. I'm going to mention, there are others you could mention as well, we could think about, but there are three especially, I think, that, that are important in this regard. The first is trust. Trust. I'm not suggesting by this that children will just believe anything you tell them. You know very well for yourselves, those of you who have children, those of you who have grandchildren, that's not necessarily how it works. You tell a child, well, instead of taking that ice lolly just now, it's not good for you. It's just before your tea time or whatever. Why don't you just, why don't you just gnaw on a carrot instead? It's far better for you. You know what the reaction's going to be, anything like that. So they don't believe everything you say to them in every context. And as we'll see in a minute, they actually tell it like it is sometimes. So the point, is, the point we're making is that trust really involves Somebody who is trustworthy to the child will come then to be trusted in by them. And that follows through into our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ as our Savior, and to our membership or belonging of the kingdom, belonging to the kingdom of God, coming under the rule of Christ, the rule of God. Because to have someone trust in you, or for us to put our trust in someone, really means that you're doing this in a way that has no suspicion about the person you're going to trust in. I mean, when you came to Jesus, for example, when you come to Christ and when you come to know Christ, your trusting in Christ obviously includes the fact that you know he's trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. You can safely put your trust in him. And that's really what's uh, illustrated by children coming to believe someone that they've regarded as trustworthy, grandparent, parent, whatever, 
They come to believe their word because they know they're reliable. They've been proved reliable in the past. They're trustworthy. So they come to trust in them. They believe what they say to them in the important issues of life, especially as they're at a young and, uh, and formative age. Sadly, that's something that tends to decrease as life goes on. As, age, as we age, we lose that sense of, of, of um, seeing people as trustworthy. That's a whole different area of study, but however. So, removing suspicion is part of coming to trust in somebody or being trustworthy. And as you come to God, you come to God and you don't suspect God and you don't suspect God's goodness and you learn not to suspect God's wisdom and to suspect God's motives. You know, that's something that's not always easy, depending on what your providence is at any given time. It's very easy just to say that you're a Christian or I'm a Christian as long as it doesn't get too difficult, as long as it doesn't get too challenging or too hurtful. But when you lose somebody you love, when somebody ha something happens that you didn't expect and causes you great grief and pain, then it's very easy for us, for me including myself, uh, to actually have some suspicious thoughts about why is God doing this? Why isn't somebody else suffering the same things? Why am I going through this? Why has it chosen me to experience this difficulty? And I don't see it going on in anybody around me or anybody that I know. And so you begin perhaps to suspect God's goodness or to just question the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the motives of God. But you know, as time goes on and as you come to know God more and more, uh, that uh, is something that, uh, again, is taken care of as you experience how trustworthy God is. And I think one of the, uh, the great challenges in life is to never suspect the wisdom of God. It's not just the way that he brings events about in his plan, but it's the way he arranges things as well, isn't it? Things that he puts together in the events of our lives or in the events of our families. Things that we would never have sought to put together ourselves and things that don't seem to fit together properly as far as we're looking at them as concerned and our understanding is concerned. But as, as you go on and as you learn that God is wise, that God is all wise, that God never makes mistakes, then you see, you see uh, from that how trustworthy he is and your trust in him is something that then repeats itself again and again. In other words, the child that comes to trust the word of their parent, the infant child that comes to accept this and trust in them, it involves their sincerity. They're doing this sincerely. They're coming to take the word of their parent, the advice of their parent, with sincerity. They don't doubt it. They don't find it in any way insincere or suspicious. So they trust with sincerity. And sincerity belongs to our trust. It's a great thing, you know, to be able to speak to God the way that you feel in your heart. You wouldn't do that if you didn't trust Him. If you didn't find Him trustworthy. If you didn't find Him someone who knows absolutely perfectly everything he's doing and why he's doing it. And children can be like that. If they see that, it's, that you're trustworthy, that you're reliable, they'll sometimes really tell it like it is. And they'll come out with things which maybe to you and to me, you would hesitate to say, at least to say as bluntly or as clearly. Last week, for example, 
our only uh, granddaughter, Joanna, when she was with us for the week, they went swimming. She came back from swimming, and I was, came down to the kitchen for coffee or something. And there she was, just newly back from her swimming. And I asked her if, how it had been swimming, and she said, yes, it's, it's, it's great. And then she said, are you not going swimming? No, I said, no, I, I don't go to the swimming because I can't swim. And she said, but you're an adult, and you can't swim. I said, no, I never learned to swim. You see, this for her is the working of her mind. I'm young. I'm, I'm still uh, under five, and I can swim. So how come you as an adult can't swim if I can do it? And she told it like it was. That's how she saw it. That's sincerity. That's trust. That's something being open. And that's what God and our trusting in him is about. You can tell things to God you would never dare say to anyone else. You can be as open with God as you find people in the Bible. And that's illustrated by the openness of a child who sincerely comes to speak to their parent or grandparent and explains things or tries to explain things just as they are, as it seems to them. You wouldn't want any other kind of God to be your God. You wouldn't want any, you wouldn't want any other uh, conditions in the kingdom except those conditions where you can come to this trustworthy God and speak to him as you can to nobody else. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Isn't that what it means to be a child of God? You know that he's your father. You know that he's trustworthy. You know that he listens to you. He's reliable. He's proved himself time and again. Is that how you see God today? there's just something of a suspicion that, that you haven't come to him and opened up your heart to him and therefore not yet entered into the kingdom of God William Gurnell one of the great Puritan writers on sincerity in his great work The Christian in Complete Armour says nothing makes you more like God in the simplicity and purity of his nature than sincerity Truth is that which God glories in. He is a God of truth. And to trust in him is to deal truthfully with him. To accept him as he is, as he reveals himself, and as he tells you of how it is with you. Then from trust you have acceptance. You know how easy it is sometimes for children to just accept things, especially gifts, and especially gifts that they've asked for themselves. But even if they haven't and you come to give them a gift that you know they're going to accept, there's no, there's no haggling with children Say, well, go on, I'd rather a more expensive one or I'd rather a, a different one to, to the one you've brought me. It's not like you're sometimes buying a car if you're one of those folks like I am and well, I don't like the price how about taking a bit off it and you haggle around the price when God comes to present his kingdom to us he's not selling it it's not for haggling over it's not for disputing over it's not for entering into a bargain with him it's for our acceptance on his terms just like you find in the heart of a child in the mind of a child the trust is expressed through acceptance, the acceptance of the gift. And you see, that's why you find here it's, uh, it's saying, uh, Truly I say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The child receives the gift from the parent, the grandparent, whoever. It's something that they accept. And that kingdom of God, that rule of God, 
is not there to be bargained over, it's not to be bought, it's to be received because it's God's gift to us, God's salvation, being a member of his kingdom, belonging to those who are indeed in Christ and who have heaven to look forward to. It hasn't come by our own efforts. Uh, you know, that's where you find verse 17 there, such a contrast and very deliberately placed by Mark here uh, in relation to these verses about children. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and said to him, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he's got all the external things in place. He's even kneeling in the presence of Christ. He's giving him a place of honor. Uh, But what comes out of his mouth is, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And all the way through the Bible, through Christ's teaching, through the teaching of the apostles, you find it reinforced again and again to us as human beings, as fallen, needy human beings. You don't do things to enter the kingdom of God. God has done everything already for us in Christ. We need to receive what he has done. To receive Jesus. To receive this salvation that God has prepared and perfected in him. And so when God uh, offers us pardon and righteousness and peace and joy, of course that challenges our self-confidence and our self-assertiveness. And we still have thoughts in our own heads that surely I must contribute something to the kingdom of God and belonging to the kingdom. Surely it's not as free as that and as easy as that. It is, says Jesus. And that's what this other man is illustrating for us. He missed the entrance to the kingdom of God because he thought about it as something he must work his way into. What must I do? Have you given up trying to create your own entrance to the kingdom of God? I hope you have because you'll never do it. It's been created for us By God in Christ. The kingdom exists. Salvation is there. It's already perfect. It's prepared. It's complete. And it's offered to us in the gospel. And the child trusting in the parent. The child receiving the gift. Is an illustration for us. Of how we enter the kingdom of God. And indeed that without that. As Jesus himself says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. The psalmist in Psalm 116 knew very well the same thing when he said, What shall I render to the Lord? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And he answered his own question by saying, I will take I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will pay my vows now in the presence of the Lord and all his people. Here is God saying to you today, I am placing before you in the gospel the cup of salvation and it's full to the brim with life. And you haven't earned it, but I have provided it for you. And what I require of you is that you receive it and take it and make it yours. Become like a little child. Put away your own prejudice. 
Put away your own resistance. Put away your thoughts of somehow there's a better way. Put away your idea that you have to contribute something in order to make it meaningful. To make it fitting for you. None of that. Receive it. Accept it. Trust the giver of it. And the third thing, I'm just going to finish with this briefly. Along with the trust, along with acceptance, you have joy or delight. You know how it is when children come to trust in someone, they receive a gift from them then, and you can just look at their face and their delight in that gift. Even if it's a tiny wee, well, a tiny wee Lego toy, let's say, that they get on holiday, that some of them that I know get on holiday anyway, when they come back and they show you, look at this new Lego toy, like this Lego thing, and put it together. It's only just taken a few minutes, but they're absolutely delighted with having it and with being able to put it together for themselves. The joy shows in their face. There's just such a, a sense of discovery. There's just a, a wow factor, if you like, to use the term, that they've actually discovered this, that there's something new, there's something there that really delights them, and it's really just what they wanted for that moment. Well, isn't there a wow factor in your own soul with regard to salvation? Honestly, we have to confess, many of us, myself included, that very often we've lost that wow factor from our lives. Perhaps we had it when we first came to know the Lord, but somehow it's diminished, it's waned, it's not what it used to be. And we sometimes just need to sit down, leave everything else, put it aside, be ourselves with God, and just study what it means to be forgiven, to be adopted by God, to be a child of God, to be an heir of heaven, to be in union with Christ, to have his acceptance, to have his approval, to have the assurance that nothing will actually stand in the way of those who are in Christ as far as they're concerned. There is no condemnation to them. As far as we're concerned, the words of, 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 of Romans 8 are so true. But how often do we just miss the sense of delight or have lost the sense of delight? And if so, let's recapture it, myself and yourself. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Delight your soul in that abundance. Renew your sense of discovery. Stop over that and study it so that you can just recapture, if you will, that wow factor that this should be yours. That God should have done this for you, for me, for our likes. In the words of the hymn, Wonderful Salvation, written many years ago by Daniel O. Teasley. O wonderful salvation from every mortal lost, the purchase of our pardon, the blood of Jesus cost. O glorious invitation, that whosoever will has gladdened many millions and holds out mercy still. O wonderful salvation, from sin that sets me free, how sweet to know that Jesus would deign my friend to be. I gaze in silent wonder at him on Calvary 
and marvel that he suffered to pardon even me. May God bless these thoughts to us. Let's pray. Lord God, help us, we pray, to comply with what you have set forth on the terms on which we enter your kingdom. Gracious Lord, we need your spirit to enable us to die to our own sinful pride and to come humbly on our knees into the kingdom of God. And we thank you for the assurance that you will welcome and receive us when we come. We thank you for the assurance that you give us that even when we already belong to your kingdom and find ourselves so often stumbling and falling and falling short, that you nevertheless do not cast us out. Bless us today, we pray, under your truth, and help us to know the benefit of taking your word as it stands and applying it to our own lives. Receive our worship, we pray, and cleanse us from all our sin. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we're singing finally to God's praise, Psalm 103. Psalm 103, that's in the Scottish Psalter. And singing from verse 8 to the tune Kilmarnock. The Lord our God is merciful and he is gracious, long-suffering and slow to wrath and mercy plenteous. He will not chide continually nor keep his anger still. With us he dealt not as we sinned, nor did requite our ill. Down as far as verse 13, such pity as a father hath unto his children dear, like pity shows the Lord to such as worship him. In fear. These verses to God's praise. The Lord our God is
to the side door to my right this morning. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.